Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Welcome to Latina Latino Stories. I'm Elena Faules. My guests today are Lorena Gotro and Carolina Villarroel. Dr. Lorena Gotro is the Digital Programs Manager for the U.S. Latino Digital Humanities Program at the University of Houston's Recovering the U.S. Hispanic Literary Heritage. Dr. Gotro received her PhD in English Literature and her Master's in Hispanic Studies from both Rice University. Her research interests include Chicanx studies, U.S. Latinx studies, digital humanities, affect theory, and decolonial theory. Carolina Villarroel has a PhD in Hispanic literature with a specialization in U.S. Latinx literature and gender studies. Villarroel served as archivist for the Mexican-American and Afro-Descendants Collection at the Houston Metropolitan Research Center at the Houston Public Library. La doctora Villarroel is a co-founder, along with la doctora Gabriela Baezaventura, of the first Digital Humanities Center for U.S. Latinx Studies, sponsored by a grant from the Andrew Mellon Foundation. Bienvenidas a este episodio. Muchas gracias. Thank you for having us. Tell me about how the Recovering the U.S. Hispanic Literary Heritage got started. Well, the program was started in 1990 by a group of scholars from all over the country who were doing uh, research in their specific areas, uh, Cuban-Americans, uh, Puerto Ricans, etc. And they uh, been collecting materials and they discovered that what they um, have collected is just, uh, you know, it's crashing the surface of all the historical materials with, that was out there and it was not being preserved by the traditional archive or the institutional archive. Mm -hmm. So um, they came together to a meeting uh, led by Dr. Nicolas Canelo, so the director of Arte Publico Press and the recovery program. And they came together and decided to create the recovery program to put together their efforts to um, starting collecting, locating, preserving, and making available all this rich uh, literary legacy of Latinas and Latinas in the U.S. And, and as a, in a way to create an alternative archive that is mostly uh, digital than anything else and, um, and, to, and to create ways to make them available everywhere. So the, the goal was to create the program with different um, topics or uh, areas of studies instead. Uh, so there is an, an effort within the program to recover newspapers, for example, that was a big part of the um, Latina community in a way uh, because it serves to communicate to the community, but also to publish. We find a great amount of serialized novels, poetry in them. So it was uh, one of the most important Uh, publishing spaces for the Latino community. So after years of, of working on this, we have a collection of approximately 1,500 newspapers and it keeps growing. Although we are in a race against time because uh, the newspapers were published and you know when, when we used to have newspapers in a really um, bad kind of paper that gets brittle with time, it's, uh, it's called burning. 
So when you touch them, it disappears, some of the older ones. So we are trying to preserve this. And uh, in some cases, we're able to collect a whole run for a newspaper and sometimes just a piece of it. Right. So in, in that sense, we also, the program created a bibliography uh, for everything that was published by Latinas and Latinos in the U.S., whereas, mm-hmm. uh, you know, literature, history, astronomy, education, anything. And we, we have right now a bibliography of thousands of records. Uh, so, and we started working on preservation and digitization at an early point during the program. Right. I have seen pictures of the physical archives and, uh, and you have bicycles to go around <laughs> the aisles. That's the, that's the <laughs> fun part. I know. I just want to visit that space just so that I can ride on those bicycles. <laughs> yes, yes. That's uh, well, the building that we have right now, we're located within the University of Houston. We, and it's very interesting because we are a nonprofit within an institution. Mm-hmm. So we which is good for us because it gave us uh, freedom Autonomy, to publish yeah. whatever we want. Mm-hmm. So we are the historical arm of Arte Publico Press. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Arte Publico Press has been around for many years. It's one of the oldest and most prestigious editorial houses for Latinas and Latinos in the U.S. So we, what you saw is the, is the warehouse mm-hmm. where all Arte Publico Press you know, are uh, housed. And uh, our offices, we share our offices, the recovery program with Arte Publico and now with USLDH. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, what you said, Carolina, about the newspaper being such an important component of not only preserving our history, but understanding how people communicated, right? How important it was um, to have access to, to, to periodicals, no? to newspapers, mm-hmm. and how that also, not only to uh, share information as a source of information for the community, uh, fairly uh, um, cheap also, right? But also uh, as a place where many, I mean, it, and we think of canonical authors in Latin America, many of them published their short stories on newspapers. And, uh, you know, and it was like, telenovelas right like a series like they would every like the um el cuento semanal right like every week they had a new um chapter right and and some of those actually um as you already know uh became actually novels right or or Mm -hmm. um later on they were published as novels but they you know and so that was happening here in the U.S. as well not only as a form to communicate but also to begin publishing literary work yeah, and also to convey uh, poli- political stances, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's so rich. Newspapers are so rich in that sense. Mm-hmm. And considering that the first newspaper published in the United States was uh, published in, in New Orleans in 1808, and it was called El Mississippi, to this point, it's a really rich source uh, of information for us now. And, and it's really interesting to see the students to, you know, that get to see and work with these newspapers here, we work with research assistants uh, because uh, they see history repeats itself you mm-hmm. know, in any cases, right. uh, you know, with immigration and, and with other issues that our communities um, confront, uh, you know, here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they can appreciate language and uh, because mo- most of our collections are uh, in Spanish, um, I will say, 85% of our collections are in Spanish, but also they can see 
that um, Latinos were also published in, in, in English. We have mm -hmm. new, uh, bilingual newspapers. We have trilingual mm -hmm. newspapers, you know, from New Orleans in English, French, and, and Spanish. Right. We have newspapers in Ladino, the newspapers mm -hmm. published in New York by the Sephardic Jews, you mm -hmm. know, so it's, it's such a rich area. And, uh, and we keep collecting, we keep finding new newspapers. I uh, uh, visited uh, Laredo a couple of months ago to work on in a, in a, recovering a collection or, you know, in the process of making visible a collection mm -hmm. from a family in Laredo. And the owner uh, was very reluctant to, um, to donate the collection. And that happens a lot. So maybe we'll talk yeah. about it later. Um, <laughs> yes, because it's a whole issue and it's very understandable, you know, the mm -hmm. distrust with the archive. Mm -hmm. And uh, her family was the family of... Uh, publishers of uh, newspaper publishers and uh, you have no idea what we found in there she, we identify at least 30 newspapers that we didn't even know existed mm -hmm. that's great and that's wonderful it was a wonderful fantastic work. finding right mm -hmm. um aside from the digitalization of documents what other digital tools are being used to best preserve these archives? And, and you just mentioned, you know, how fragile some of these documents are. And there is a sense of urgency to make to make sure that they're digitized, right? Right now, that's the best way to like keep them forever um, in theory, right? Um, so uh, what other digital tools are you using to, to make sure these uh, collections are preserved and available? Well, preservation for archives is generally about protecting the items themselves. Mm -hmm. So we do, and you know, Carolina, maybe you want to jump in here. We do handle them in very specific ways before we even get into those digital tools, right? Um, how the people who are scanning the newspapers or any fragile items have to have clean hands mm -hmm. or how um, they can't have food or drink around them. Mm -hmm. Or they remove staples or um, paper clips that will damage those items. And so that's the kind of pre preliminary preservation of the item itself. Mm -hmm. Anything else I'm missing? Yeah, I mean, uh, no, that's, that's, that's great. And, and we have this idea of the archivist, you know, using white gloves, uh, you know, to touch them. So is that yeah. not happening every day? Do you guys not wear gloves? I guess, I guess people are still using that, but it's not recommended because uh, you don't have control of your fingers with the white glove. Right. So you can end up, you know, producing more damage to an historical document than anything else. Mm -hmm. So the re really the recommendation is to use very clean hands, no lotion, not anything, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and just be very careful with the newspaper, especially. We tell the students working on this project on digitization to just take their time. Just, mm -hmm. you know, we have like uh, cardboards to mm -hmm. move one newspaper to the machine and mm -hmm. take it back very carefully. And then uh, what we used to do and it was the standard before it was to microfilm newspapers, mm -hmm. microfilm yeah. materials. And yeah. that was, uh, that was, per se, the way uh, to do with preservation. I remember and, looking uh, at some of those microfilms. <laughs> we still have them. We still have a ton here. We have several collections of microfilm that we're getting ready to digitize now. And you need a special machines to do that. So fortunately, we have that here. We have book scanners and microfilm scanners. Uh, but um, this, uh, that was the way because the newspaper can last for 100 years. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we don't do that anymore because 
there are barely companies out there that can do this work anymore. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, technology has advanced so much that uh, you can truly preserve uh, digital content now. Mm-hmm. If you make sure to follow certain standards, for example, you need to make sure that they're digitizing the materials in TIFF format, that is the best quality format to do this work, between 300 and 600. Mm-hmm. We use 300 because 600 is crazy big and you run out of space like right away. And mm-hmm. 300 seems to work very well for, for the needs of an archive and for publication. Let's say you went to publish a book and you need an image. Uh, TIFF 300, is, it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. So we do that and we make sure that we, uh, we keep copies in different places. So that's preservation. Uh, you keep a copy here in a server, then you keep a copy in another place. And, and mm-hmm. there's at least three places that you need to, you, you need to keep a copy. So um, you make sure that if something happens, you have another copy. Now for the originals, like I said at the beginning, we are not a, a traditional archive. We we have a few collections here, especially for Arte Publico, but what we, we have a partnership with the University of Houston Special Collections and we've been working with them for years. So we process the collections here, we digitize them. That is, a, you know, by the way, it's an excellent opportunity for our students for training. Mm-hmm. And then we send the collections to the archive at the University of Houston. Mm-hmm. If the family doesn't request the collection back, mm-hmm. that uh, we work a lot with a, with a model that is called now um, post-custodial. Mm-hmm. We've been using it for year, even, years, even before it was called that. We respect the wishes of, of the donors mm-hmm. to get their materials back if they wish that. They want to. Mm-hmm. And we give them tools. We give them copies of the digital files and we give mm-hmm. them tools for preservation. And we recommend for them to, in the future, to donate the collections because to consider donating the collections to an archive for preservation purposes, climate change is real. Yeah. And, uh, and also because we want to take up space in the archives. We want mm-hmm. these collections to reclaim that space that should have been theirs in the first place. Right, right. Yeah, no. Yeah, and and with the advent of the digital humanities as a field, it's really helped us to think about preservation in terms of passing those stories along. You know, so we've known as as a community that telling stories has been the way that we've preserved our history, mm-hmm. right? So we've been exploring these different softwares that allows these stories to be available for scholars or students to the community at large. So some of these tools have been, you know, more traditionally structured archival platforms like Omeka. Mm -hmm. Um, We've also just started experimenting with Collection Builder and we're thinking about using Clouder, which Chicana por mi raza has been using for a very long time. Um, We also use mapping programs that really help us create this visual representation Mm -hmm. of that Latino presence in the U.S. So as Carolina mentioned earlier, you know, we're trying to reclaim the space in the physical archives and the libraries in these institutions of of, uh, quote unquote knowledge, right? We're also trying to show how we've been here within the geographical space of the United Mm -hmm. States. And so mapping, whether it be like a a visual or um, we actually had a 
a high school intern create a 3D model, like a printed 3D oh, model of a map <laughs> with um, like different, the topography actually represented the publication of Hispanic periodicals. And mm. so Julian Silva created this, this 3D printout to help us engage that data in a very different way. And so we think about data in the way that is about stories because I think people hear data and they, they, you know, some people scream and they're like, no, I'm a humanist or I care about, <laughs> you know, hearing about stories or reading. I don't want to know about numbers, but these numbers actually represent people and they mm -hmm. represent us as a community. And so using these digital platforms allows us to engage these stories and right. really see like that breadth of mm -hmm. uh, participation in the formation of U.S culture and cultural and political life and mm -hmm. it's really astounding um, we've also done like network analysis that just helps us pinpoint these connections between different publishers different newspapers uh, different authors to see like who is publishing and with what newspaper mm -hmm. who is communicating with with different authors you know and so then you see start seeing these clusters and we already knew this about anglo-american authors we already knew this about connections to English authors, um, but people weren't talking about these connections to, between the Latino authors or the Latino authors and Anglo-American, you know, white authors. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, Maria Cristina Mena has this ongoing relationship where she writes to D.H. Lawrence constantly and he's having her read her, read his um, his stuff and she's having him read her stuff. And so, you know, we have these communications and yet in the classroom, they get divided out into these like separate boxes. Mm -hmm. They're all very intertwined. Right. Well, you know, Lorena, that I have the oral history project uh, mm -hmm. here of Latinos in Ohio, and that that's my second or one of my wishes is to develop a map visualization in terms of where uh, Latinos are in the state, but also where they come from. And, you know, and I've done uh, very little, I did very little work with that, uh, or a small sample of that uh, when I published the Latino stories across Ohio iBook. Um, and so you could see where the person came from and, and uh, but it's, it's basic. <laughs> and, uh, which is, you know, but it's another way of understanding migration. And that's what I like. So we have stories, we have documents, and then the maps give you just a different uh, way of understanding people's stories, people's migration. And, and yeah, I mean, when people think of maps, traditional maps, maybe are not as sexy. <laughs> I don't know. I love maps. So <laughs> I love thinking about maps. Um, right. I, I do love, you know, putting kind of pressure on, on the way in which we write and create borders. Right. And kind right. of political lines that are basically fake right and how people move right. around them but with the digital the digital yeah. uh, tools that we have those maps come alive right and yes. you, can, you can click on different things and it gives you information and that to me and even like if you put you know like the different years where was this border you know 10 years ago or 100 years ago and where is it now and uh, you know so that um interactive maps are 
very valuable for sure uh, exactly. to complement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's so different from a static story, right? There's right. so much movement going on of people, of languages, of literature, culture that they're moving around, as well as those political boundaries that continuously change. And suddenly someone's on one side of the border and their their families right. on the other, just based right. on that, the, the political climate sometimes. Right, right. Um, so, I mean, I can uh, draw conclusions, right? Why this work is so important. I'm part of, you know, some of this work in a different way, but I want to hear this from you. Why is the work so important? Um, like you mentioned, uh, Carolina, the archives have existed for a long time, but um, but we're thinking of archives in a different way now in, you know, 2021, you know, and, and it didn't start in 2021, you know, we have a, a couple of decades into this work. So tell me why this is so important for you and for, for us as, um, you know, Latinos in, in the U.S. Yes, as I think it's a, uh... Well, for us, it's very important. And, and, and when I say us, it's for our community uh, and our community of scholars too, who have been working on this for a long time. Uh, the recovery project is uh, like 20 years, 20 years, 30 years. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's 30. It's 30. It's 30 started years, in the 90s. Yes. <laughs> At this yes. They're all melding together. So the recovery project is 30 right. years old. And uh, and so you can imagine all the work that has been uh, put into this, you know, and trying to preserve it. It's it was as important uh, as it was before when they started the project as it is now, because we still on the struggle to make spaces for these collections to be included in the archive. And we're not the only community that is being you know pushed aside from this institutional uh, you know space. Uh, and it is so important because archives are supposed to be the spaces where history is preserved. So we, if we're not part of the archive, we are not part of the history of the country. And that is, is unacceptable. It's unacceptable because uh, our intellectuals, our politicians, our leaders in the community, civil rights leaders, uh, were participating, were actively participating, feminist women writing writing and thinking about uh, the feminist movement alongside our, our, their Anglo counterparts. And, uh, and they're not present. It's like uh, they don't exist. And when we go through the archive here, we find all these writings and their participation. And it's uh, sometimes it's painful to see that, that there, there are students are the, the younger generations uh, do not have access to this, do not know about this. Sometimes they don't even know what an archive is, you know? So it's important because of that, because we need to create a presence and because it's a struggle and we're struggling every day to be able to find these materials that are still out there, to be able to, uh, to have uh, the community uh, trust us, uh, and that's why it's so important to that we do the work, you know, or that that we talk to the community and ask them, what do you need? What are your needs? What, uh, or to tell them your 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 collections or your family collections are important, and they deserve to be part of the history of the United States or the culture of the United States. Your abuelita recetas, you know, are important because they document uh, time. And sometimes women didn't have space, they didn't have time to write. So they used to write around the, the recipes, right? Or anything. I remember finding 
uh, a poem, an exile poem, and uh, and um, in a newspaper from El Paso, and it was beautiful, you know. And and, and this woman was looking. She was in the exile and she was looking to her homeland from uh, far away. And that's the only thing that we have been able to find from her because probably she didn't have time to write. Mm. But all these pieces we need right. to put together and we need to make them be part of the construct of this country, you know, and to, and to bring them to the, the educational system, especially here in Texas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're struggling with everything that is going on and our history is, is taking, you know, from our kids. I mean, it's already minimal and, and right now it's getting worse. So we find these ways to make, to preserve this collection and to make them available mm -hmm. through, you know, what you were talking about, uh, digital projects that are appealing, that digital projects that in most cases, uh, our communities can use and create themselves because we, we use, we make the point to use software that is free and available. So we can go to our communities mm -hmm. and teach them how to use it. And uh, one of the things that we are doing, and I think this I'm um, getting into something that we're going to talk later, but one of the things that we're doing that, that I think it's important, it's uh, we re just recently received a grant uh, from LULAC, the local LULAC here in LULAC 60, that is called the uh, historical LULAC. And we will be going to elementary school to work with teachers and kids in fifth grade to create a timeline, a digital timeline. We'll be using Timeline.js, but we will bring the archive to them. We will bring, uh, you know, uh, historical materials, memorabilia, and we will also mm -hmm. create this timeline, incorporating all the well-known, you know, uh, leaders from the Texas history, you know, Sam Houston and et cetera. But we will be including our leaders, uh, the, the, the leaders that should be alongside these historical figures, Adina de Zavala, uh, right. Lorenzo de Zavala, you know, um, um, Perales, Alonso Perales, civil rights leaders. So, so kids can see that their history is as important and it should be part of this uh, continuum and, and, and it should be part of the curriculum, you know. In a fun way, right, in a way that right. they can create, that they mm -hmm. can, you know, that they can show uh, in their classes. And it's also a skill, you know, a skill that they're they will be learning. So we're very excited right. about that. Right. But I think, you know, uh, going back to your question, it's it's important because of all these elements, because, because we need to keep working and reforming the archival world. And uh, we have been present. We, we make the point to go to conferences, to go to the American Archivist Association conference and present about this work mm -hmm. and tell them, you know, you need to include more Latinos and Latinas in your files. And we mm -hmm. talk to our students mm -hmm. and, and tell them, we teach them the ways of the archive. And we, we tell them, uh, Consider applying, consider working in Ara. We need, we need more of our people in there. And the archives need this too, because they need to understand our communities in a better way. And they need people also that uh, know other languages to be able to process these collections and to create um, and to name these collections, you know, and to we're challenging the naming conventions for the archives as well, because I mean, I don't know if you know, but the, the Library of Congress still has. Uh, illegal immigrants in their uh, in their naming system they shouldn't exist anymore you mm. know so uh, right. th these things uh, are so necessary and we're we're making the point to 
to uh, to pass this to the next generation of scholars so they can continue the fight of deconstructing all these spaces so they can include us. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, one of right. the other things we say is like, well, what happens when you search for your own ethnic identity online? What happens if you mm-hmm. Google Latino? What happens if you get on Twitter and search the hashtag Latina? What kind of results do you get? And the results for the longest time we're all very pejorative, you know, mm-hmm. um, and ne- and that negativity affects you as a student or as a researcher. You know, I mean, we're we're adult academics, but it still will bother me if I'm trying to hashtag or like look at a hashtag and all I see are negative representations of who's supposed to be representative of me. You know, and I'm mm-hmm. thinking about like our children too, if they're asked to do research right. and they only see this negative representation of themselves. And actually we've already seen a change in that, in the types of results we get. And so even um, just people outside of the archive who have social media, if you start tagging things um, with that, uh, with, for example, hashtag Latina, then you're changing the types of results that are out there. And that's really right. important. So rather than having these representations that are just, um, you know, over-sexualized images of women or um, just kind of hollow Hollywood representations <laughs> of Latinas, um, we uh-huh. can change that by sharing our academics we can share scholarship and histories Mm -hmm. and leaders latina leaders right Mm -hmm. so that Mm -hmm. the next generation can have access to these more positive representations and understand themselves as part of a um a continuum and um building toward the nation state Right. What you just said. So two things that you both said that uh, I want to follow up, maybe maybe another podcast (laughs) that we do. Uh, One thing is what you just said, Lorena, about um, I I feel like um, I need to have this conversation with students about, you know, just how easy we can change that conversation or the, you know, hashtagging uh, Latina or Latino and uh, being, you know, because you're posting about graduation, because you're posting about, you know, other leaders or even challenges of a community that community is having and not, you know, so that you're changing that narrative to uh, be more inclusive of diverse experiences of, of, of Latinos, exactly. right? And not just one often stereotypical narrative of who we are. Um, so, so that in every class, <laughs> I'm going to include this little talk you know, about this, just to encourage that, because I think, um, I think a lot of us, you know, as academics, we we understand this, but maybe our students um, don't understand the impact that they can have, right? Just because they're on social media all the time, mm-hmm. right? What the, 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 the shift that can happen if we are, um, you know, thinking on keywords that we can that we can add there to have a wider, more just representation of our community. And the other thing, Carolina, that you said, I am, um, I'm always interested in the history of food and food associated with, um, you know, communities and 
And what you said, you know, like how women were, um, you know, writing recipes and then embedded into those recipes might have been something, you know, uh, create a creative writing, but but also, um, so I do a small project with, with students sometimes about digital storytelling um, based on food stories. And, you know, uh, sometimes they find there is a historical significance of, you know, um, their grandmother's recipe, right, uh, that became famous because at that particular time, they only had access to those, you know, items that they could use and they were creative and, um, you know, making a new dish or something like that. And so it's not just like a preference or, but there is uh, historical significance, right. That, that could be marked by what was happening at that time, you know, uh, what access or what, we had to food or not have, you know, what, what was going on. And um, so I definitely, I think uh, I want to follow up on, on some of the work that you've done in relation to like food. Yes, uh, for sure. Of course. <laughs> and it's, uh, and it's interesting because you know, exactly like you said, it, it, I mean, the different ingredients that are, you know, listed in a recipe can tell you about the, the historical moment that they were living or the spaces where they are living you know, right. uh, the needs of certain, you know, in certain periods of time that make you, you know, make a soup with the, I don't know, with flour, you know, it's, it's very, very rich. My favorite example yeah, yeah. is water pie, water pie from the Great Depression. Yeah, look at that oh. recipe, because, you know, the women, the women made the most of what they could with, with what they had access to. And it also tells you something about the women in these uh-huh. families that, you know, they were yeah. making the main dish, but then also trying to give a little joy to their family, mm-hmm. create a dessert out of what they had rationed to them and made right. a dessert out of water. So check that water <laughs> and a lot of sugar. But, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, yeah, these are historical moments. And I wanted to add that I, I can't remember what podcast it was on, um, but Ana Castillo talked about this and Caro mentioned this earlier that women sometimes didn't have a whole lot of time, you know, and, you know, Ana Castillo was asked like, well, why did women write a bunch of poetry back in the sixties? And she said, because we didn't have time because it's what you could write while the baby was sleeping, while the frijoles were on the stove, you know? And so sometimes it was short, but poignant. And Mm -hmm. so you have these, these artifacts that they're much more than the poem. They're telling you about a very significant social construct. And, mm-hmm. and the women mm-hmm. are writing, they're stuffing as much uh, power <laughs> into these words, right, as possible right. and putting them on napkins, on the side right. of recipe right. books and whatever they have mm-hmm. access to. Mm-hmm. Lorena and Carolina, I know that through this work, you are also highlighting many other digital humanities projects out there. Uh, I know there is a list and I know my project is there. And I uh, also, um, you know, added some uh, information about other projects that I know about. Um, So tell me about the specifically about the U.S. Latino Digital Humanities Program. Well, I, I can talk about the start, you know, with, uh, with and the connection with the recovery because the the USLDH it's a 
uh, grows from their recovery program. It's part of their recovery program because we have this huge archive of materials available. And what uh, and, and in digital humanities, what is very rich is that most of this material is uh, a pre-copyright. So we can do things with it, you know? And uh, so Gabby and I started thinking, how do we move forward the work of the recovery project? Uh, although we've been digitizing, like I said, for a long time, so we had this content, we had all these uh, assets ready to go. And what do we do? And uh, we started doing research and uh, we discovered uh, uh, digital humanities. And we discovered that we've been doing digital humanities for a long time. What we needed was to, you know, uh, learn a little bit more about the field, what it entailed and some of the software. So uh, we decided that this was the best way to go, to move forward the work of the recovery program. And, and we were right. We, I mean, it was the right thing to do because it, it's, I mean, it's obvious, you know? So we, we started working and we approached the Mellon Foundation to, um, uh, for a grant. We, uh, we went big and they, and they called us back and they said, okay, hold your horses, <laughs> you know, let's talk first, let's see what you want to do. And, uh, and they suggested to, for us to apply for, uh, for a, a planning grant first. And it was, it was a great, great recommendation because that planning grant allowed us to travel uh, around the country, visiting different uh, centers. What we knew from the beginning is that our digital humanities will be very tied to uh, social justice because of the materials that we had. So we uh, uh, chose to visit these centers that were uh, uh, strong in social justice and, uh, and uh, that were working with uh, languages other than English that were uh, you know, focused on community, that uh, had all these components. So we visited, I think around nine centers and also the, the funding uh, allows to uh, get training you know, uh, to get the, the, because we, I mean, we know how to use a computer, but we know a lot of other stuff. So we started attending conferences, you know, going to different uh, trainings and uh, learning a lot. And we realized also that, uh, that uh, the, the field of digital humanities was very wide. You know, to, to be playing like in many other fields, like, uh, you know, archives field. So we, we thought we, we have work to do here. We need to include our community, our scholars here. Uh, you know, we need to make, because for sure people are doing this work. So we created a survey very fast. Like in a couple of weeks, we came up with a survey to see if there was interest out there to create a center to apply for the second grant. Within a week, we got more than 100 responses from all over the country saying, yes, I mean, what this is about for the little that I know, yes, and yes, I want to apply this for my, you know, uh, 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 research, et cetera, et cetera. So that helped us to prove that the, the interest was there, out there, and we applied for, the, for a bigger grant, and it was awarded, and, and that helped us also to continue the legacy of the recovery program or given uh, grant senates the recovery program at that point had uh, uh, awarded 182 grants for projects that's huge that uh, that uh, helped you know build the field of recovery you know and we now have what we call recovery scholars 
So we wanted to continue with that legacy because uh, it was successful. It's very successful. So we, we applied for money for that, and we are happy to report that we had uh, awarded mm, how many, uh, Lore, we gave um, with the cohort? 16? 16. Uh, $7,500 uh, granting aids because we want it to be substantial so people can actually take time off from work to do this because uh, it's such a new field. So that helped us too. Yeah. I wanted to mention that that, that is something that um, is part of the conversation currently, right? That this work is important and it's new and uh, and we know is valuable, but our institutions are a little behind in recognizing the value of it um, in terms of providing scholars or researchers the time that it needs, um, uh, you know, like free time to actually do this kind of work, right? To invest a little bit more time in learning the tools and uh, creating, documenting, et cetera. Um, so, so I'm, you know, so I just wanted to point that out that, um, I think in, in general institutions are behind in recognizing the work that it takes, right. Um, the time that it takes to, to develop projects, to spend the time that you need, yeah. um, to yeah. build your archive or. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, in addition to the way in which the institution has traditionally devalued work by by and about Latino scholars and studies is really like, it has this, these long effects, right? Because then these are not the projects that are being funded. These are not the scholars and students that are getting that training. So in that survey, as Carolina mentioned, there was this interest, but there was a lack of training or access to training from our constituents. And so what we're trying to do is really give more opportunities to our constituents, right? We want more Latino projects. We want more people doing Latino digital humanities. We want them to have access to that training, right? For students to not learn about it once they've already graduated, you know, so that they can start learning about it while they're at undergrads or even in high school um, or before that, you know, um, and then professors who want to gain that knowledge that they can have access to the training. But also this training is really specific to the work we do as Latino scholars, right? It's not just about making scans. It's not just about producing something digital. It is also about the ethical concerns and creating a methodology that makes sense for our work and for our community, because we're aware that there are many community uh, digital projects in which people go out into the community and basically just take over. They take over and decide how to represent that history without actually having conversations with the community and not, not actually having a buy-in besides like just having it for themselves and taking ownership in, the, in this very colonial model. And so we want to teach people not only how to use the tools, but how to use them in this um, ethical way, you know, in using a methodology that makes sense for our community. And if I want, I want to mention something also, because we did something different. 
with these awards, uh, when we we decided very early on, when we uh, started implementing the grant CNAs, that we wanted not just give them money and say, see you in a year, <laughs> send us the report. We wanted to be involved. We wanted to really help their projects that are our these projects uh, to be successful. So we created a whole system uh, where we welcome them. We have a training that is called Manos a la Obra that we will implement next year uh, and hopefully every year during the summer. Uh, but um, we walk with them, you know, through the project. We help them think through the project. So they, at the end of the year, they have something to show. So to, for, for example, because this is open not just for scholars, this is open also for the community, for small museums and all that. So, so that way they have to, something to show so they can uh, uh, apply for bigger grants to help preserve their mm-hmm. collections. So we have meetings, we have uh, open hour, uh, hours, uh, office hours, so they can come and ask questions. We have, uh, you know, we guide them really. It's not just the money, we guide them and offer what we know. We share our knowledge mm-hmm. with them. And going back to the list, I mean, this is making the list grow and making more visibility. And it's as simple as a Excel sheet you know, as you mm-hmm. mentioned, but it's so important mm-hmm. because it makes such an impact and something that happened this year and that, that I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, proud of, and it's not proud. And it's, it, I think it, it, it speaks about the success of this Excel sheet because mm-hmm. when, we, when we work with the community, we, uh, here in Houston, we are uh, working very closely with uh, a LULAC historian. He's a community mm-hmm. historian uh, who is in, doing a lot for the history of Houston specifically. And we and, and he took ownership of the list. And it's amazing because that's exactly what we wanted. And and mm-hmm. he got in there and he started adding projects and adding, you know, items to the list. And I think that's really, really beautiful because uh, uh, it's something that we could offer that they could take ownership of and, you know, and, and, and say, okay, this is our list now and we're going to keep adding materials in there. So... It, it was very gratifying. Right. I think, I mean, it is orgullo, mm-hmm. no? De que algo que empezaron, somebody else. I mean, that's what we hope, right? With projects um, that if something happens to the person that started it, it, the project doesn't die, right? But somebody else can continue to add to it or take it, you know, just expand upon it. Um, so I know that you've mentioned throughout our conversation um, different ways and maybe you work with communities or you reach out to communities. And we certainly can recognize that this work is valuable, right, for scholars, researchers. Um, but I, um, if you can talk a little bit more about how you work with community and why is this relevant to them, you know? Yeah. But the collections, um, the history comes from the community. You know, they own them. And, uh, and like Lorena said before, uh, you know, uh, we talk about data, but data, I mean, for us, is people. You know, uh, even though we, we, we have a ton of materials that we have not connection to the descendants, people that died a long time ago that we use, we, we work with it in a very respectful way. And that's what we teach our students, too. You know, so we, 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 we always work with the community and the, and the families that way. Uh, like I mentioned before, like with the post-custodial model, you know, it's a, it's a way of respecting uh, their wishes and their history and offering them something, you know, we're interested in preserving for the future and for them to understand that this is, uh, you know, 
bigger than themselves, that, that their history, their family history belongs to, to all of us, to the community and to the, to the, to the country. Yeah, as a whole, everybody, not just our community, deserves to know uh, the, the, the contributions of Latinos and Latinos in the United States. The states. Everybody should know because this is part of, part of everybody's history. So we, we work, I mentioned LULAC before, we work with LULAC CC. They have a ton of history and also they're very active. And we've been able to get uh, a couple of grants from them and from LULAC National to invite students here, uh, undergraduate, no, high, uh, high school and undergraduate students to work and learn, you know, uh, working in the archive and doing some uh, digital work. And it's been so gratifying to be able to, you know, to see the kids discover, rediscover their history. So that's one of the things that we do. We also been involved in, you know, have pop-ups of bringing part of the archive to the communities. Like I mentioned before, the, the, the involvement with the schools, uh, this is not the first time that we go to an elementary school. Uh, Lore and Gabby went to another school to teach the kids how to do uh, Twitter bots, for example. You know, so we're trying to infiltrate this educational system in that way, but also working with our immediate community here and in the the neighborhood that is right behind us in the building uh, to connect with them and to to work that trust, you know, and uh, and tell them that they can trust us, that they can, that we're not going to use their collections and we take it farther. It's it's work. I'm not going to lie about it. I mean, you make a commitment but that commitment comes with calls, you know, that people, because they, they are excited about preserving their history and what's and, and, and make it available. So you have to be ready to get those calls and work with them because we ask them, how do you see this collection to be, uh, you know, presented to, to the community and in a public facing software? So do you, which colors do you think it would be appropriate? Do you like what we're doing? You know, what would you suggest? We have a collection from uh, one of the first uh, Latina engineers for NASA, uh, Candy Torres, and uh, uh, she called herself, um, I, I just forgot. Technorican. A Technorican. So it's amazing. Her collection is huge, and she's heavily involved in the process of the collection, the processing of the collection. So now we're teaching her how to use Omeka so she can go into the collection and help us identify photographs and tell us the right way it should be described. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the work that we're doing. I don't know, Laura, you want to add anything else? I just, I realize we haven't, since we're like here entre nos, we're, we're doing first name basis, but we haven't mentioned our other teammates by name. So I just wanted to mention um, our other teammate, the other co-founder of USLDH, Dr. Gabriela Baez-Aventura, who's the executive editor of Arte Publico Press, as well as the associate professor of Spanish at the University of Houston. And then um, Dr. Linda Garcia Merchant, who is our USLDH postdoctoral fellow. And she's also a co-founder of the Chicana Por Mi Raza Memory Collective. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's our team. We have a, and, and, and we're very fortunate because we have a great team that, like you said at the beginning, go and up to a ride with the bike. <laughs> you know? And by the way, you're welcome to come and ride the bike at any time. <laughs> Absolutely. I am coming. That's on my to-do list. <laughs> Next For time sure. I'm in Houston, I'm, I'm calling you and say, can I get a ride? 
Can I get a tour? I, we were talking about food. We're all dragonas here. So right. We can go out to eat. We'll take you to the barrio. Okay, not in the archive. Really good, lots of really good food here in the Houston East End right. near the university. No, I definitely want a tour. And I definitely think, um, you know, you're, you've made me think about um, how uh, we're writing a grant, a large grant to um, make a digital archive of Latino presence in Ohio that is more the oral history. So it's, it'll include oral histories, but it'll, it'll be more comprehensive, I guess. And, and one of the things that we want to do is um, go into the schools and, you know, and, and the work that you just mentioned, Carolina and, and Lorena, that you've done, right? How do we bring this history um, and provide tools for teachers to, to incorporate into their classrooms in a way that's interactive, that's fun, and that is a just representation of all people, right, uh, including Latino histories. Um, so, so definitely, um, I know who to go to when, when, when we get to that point, um, and to, you know, work with K through 12 um, educators here locally. We'll be happy to help. Yes. Uh, so just to end this conversation, Lorena and, and Carolina, what is something um, exciting that's happening uh, in terms of research or projects there in Houston right now? Well, we dare to dream. So we're always dreaming big, right? Um, obviously, like funding is always difficult, but we're trying our best to get as much as possible so that we can provide more training and more um, speaker events that will be public. Um, and we're also open to any collaborations with other people. So um, we've been, you know, helping to, uh, or be, we've been written into grants so that we can collaborate. Um, some of our big projects that are coming out is uh, we've just started working on the Proyecto de la Literatura Puertorriqueña, which is supported by a grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. And um, this is a three-year grant where we're developing a Puerto Rican literature archive. It'll have, it's starting with poetry and we're hoping to expand that. And there'll be um, a digital database as well. Um, we're also working on a project for the Clear Hidden Collections grant on uh, the periodicals in the U.S.-Mexico border region. And um, that's really exciting. We just tweeted out a picture today of a newspaper from McAllen, El Mañana, that actually had a clip of a story, an article about the flu epidemic. So um, it's really exciting to do those scannings. Our students get excited because they can see the history, you know, just coming alive. Um, we also have several local collections that we're hoping to make public soon. Um, the Candy Torres one we've been working on, as Carolina mentioned, with Candy Torres. We're hoping to expand that and provide better descriptions for that. Um, we have a student working on the Morales family scrapbook. Carol, do you want to say something about that? But the Morales family, it's, it's, it, that, that collection, it's uh, directly uh, associated with Houston. It is one of the uh, families, uh, leaders in the, in the community here. Um, they had uh, a funeral home that's been here for years, and it grows out of the need of, of finding a place for the Latino community to, uh, you know, uh, commemorate their dead and also spaces where to bury them because there, there were not spaces for that. So, and they had a radio station. So it's a very rich uh, uh, scrapbook that we are digitizing and we're trying to make it feel the way a scrapbook feels. So we're in the process now, you know, student uh, shine, uh, 
Uh, Google is it's uh, it's looking for software that could allow us to do that to have the feel uh, 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 that uh, the granddaughter it's a it's a state representative uh, here in the area so we're hoping that she could give us our oh, yeah. history so we can attach to the project and also um, we will be interested in accessing the records. Uh, because uh, many of uh, of that, you know, a lot of that information was uh, not available and was not included in that official record. So we want to dig in there and see uh, how you know these numbers and these histories relate to the general history, you know, portrayed during that time. Uh, we have a ton of projects we work like yeah yeah, another forthcoming one yeah and I'll I'll leave you with the last one um I mean we have several but um but we have a Latino film history project that will be released soon this was a digital collection compiled uh that compiles articles about cinema that were published in the United States in Spanish language periodicals and it you know, it highlights the impact of Latinas in the film industry from about the 1900s to I think like 1960. And this project was supported by an ACLS grant for the Media History Digital Library, which was led by Dr. Eric Hoyt at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And um, the student lead one on this was actually an undergraduate, Catherine Zapata. So that'll be, you know, look for that. Um, You can actually find a list of all our projects on our website, if you go to artepublicopress.com. And you can also find books if you're interested in books that reflect and represent Latinos and Latino culture. Um, All these books are written by Latinos. So they're really exciting. There's everything from adult, mm-hmm. young adult, uh, there's children's, there's children readers, all the, all the children's books are bilingual. Um, so they make wonderful gifts. And they're just, um, they're just really exciting to read and to be able to see yourself represented. So explore our website and also check out our social media so that you can find out about our new and upcoming projects. Great. Thank you. Uh, Lorena and Carolina, muchas gracias por esta conversación. Gracias a ti. Gracias. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Mm-hmm.